Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. murdered in his storage unit. Now, I've been to Hong Kong back when it was owned, so to speak, or administered by the British, and again a couple of years ago. Now, a lot of Westerners would go to live and work there, especially in the finance industry, and it's an interesting place to visit. And I did go to Macau also in 1994, when it was still run by the Portuguese. Now, that was the first place I ever went outside of Australia, and the Portuguese influence from the architecture to the flat chickens made it such a beautiful place to go and have a look. It reminded me of the main street in Marrickville, if anyone in Sydney get gets the drift of what I'm saying. Now, Macau back then was only 16 square metres, not square kilometres, back in the day. It's really changed now with large areas reclaimed from the sea. Anyway, we're getting a little bit off the track with my memories of a time when we could travel freely. Oh my God. I get married in February. Two weeks later, I'm back in Australia and Kate's over in Thailand and I have yet to go back and see her and it could be another six months. It's just a bit stressful, a bit shit. Anyway, let's get on with this week's episode. Now, I will be referencing Canadian newspapers of all things because I don't have any Hong Kong newspapers in my newspapers.com subscription. So we've got the province from British Columbia. We've got the Morning Star from British Columbia. We've got the Windsor Star also from Ontario. So there we go. But the main... uh, (laughs) The main place I've got all my information from are from the actual court documents from Hong Kong. So let's get stuck into it. It's Hong Kong, it's 2003, and investment banker Robert Kissel is working there with Merrill Lynch. He and his wife Nancy and their three kids moved to Hong Kong in 1997 when Robert was offered a job as vice president in Goldman Sachs Asian Special Situations Group. Robert and Nancy had been married for nine years at this time, and they were very well off. They lived in a $20,000 a month apartment at the Hong Kong Park View, and the kids went to the Hong Kong International School. Now, both of those are on Hong Kong Island. It was reported that between 2000 and 2003, Robert, in his job at Merrill Lynch, was on an annual income of $175,000 US dollars, with commissions and bonuses, which amounted to $5.25 million over those three years. Robert's work often involved overseas travel, and according to his second-in-command and friend, a Mr. David No, he was extremely professional, he got along with everyone, and he was a social drinker. Robert was a natural athlete, He was handsome, so to speak, and gifted at maths. Now, I know that listeners in the US call it math, but really, it's maths. Changed my mind. (laughs) Anyway, uh, 
Not only did the Kizzle family have a place in Honkers, but they also had a family ski house or chalet in Stratton, Vermont. Now, Robert and Nancy, Nancy had what looked like the perfect marriage to those on the outside. At first, Nancy worked while Robert finished his schooling and started his career. Now, as Robert had become more successful in his career and with it wealthier, Nancy liked to flaunt that wealth, whereas Robert was a bit more grounded. Now, this would lead to some arguments over how much she spent, like buying on clothes, shoes and whatever. I mean, I know that our cupboard in Thailand is full of clothes and there's not many of those of mine. But anyway, I'm not a millionaire. During a ski trip to Whistler at Christmas 2002, witnesses reported that Robert and Nancy would often argue and had several unhappy moments. They discussed getting counselling, but this never eventuated. Now, Robert worked very hard in Honkers, starting work very early and coming home late. Now, Nancy with the kids at Parkview seemed to take this as part of the deal. The money was flowing and she loved money. She spent her days playing tennis and shopping at the park, park view, which basically had everything you would ever want. You didn't have to leave the place if you didn't want to. It was a big expat-filled condominium. All the men, generally, all the men would go out to work in their office in town and all the women stayed at home and socialised. Robert felt that Nancy had changed. Now, he did install spyware on her computer in January of 2003 so he could monitor what she was up to. Now, in 2003, we got SARS, which particularly affected Southeast Asia. Now, SARS is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome caused by Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus. Yes, we had the coof back then as well. This outbreak worried Robert and so he sent the family to the chalet in Stratton in March of 2003 and he joined them in May with the plan that Nancy and the kids would stay there until the situation was safer in Hong Kong. Now, Robert then returned to Hong Kong to resume work. Now, when Nancy and the kids were in Stratton, an audio-visual technician or a TV repairman, was employed to fit some TV and stereo gear to the Stratton place. His name was Michael De- Michael Del Priore. Now, Robert had some kind of sixth sense about this guy and got a private eye to watch the place. Now, while doing surveillance, the private eye noticed Priore park his van along a dirt track near the house and he snuck around and walked in the house. The PI called Robert and reported the goings-on in real time. Now, Robert called the Stratton house and spoke to Nancy. And he said, Nancy, don't do anything stupid. We have the children. We promised each other we'd get this back together. Now, the next thing you know, Priori is rushing out of the house and took off in his van. So, at this stage, Robert has confided in quite a few people that he loves Nancy and would like to keep his marriage, but he isn't happy and that he might be, or he will be, filing for divorce. Now, after the SARS situation settled down, Nancy and the kids flew back to Hong Kong to join Robert. In fact, I think Robert got on the phone not long after this little incident with Priori and basically said, come back. 
Now, on 29th of July 2003, Robert sought advice from Hampton, Winter and Glynn solicitors about divorce proceedings. He stated that he believed his wife had formed a relationship with a man in Vermont and he wanted to maintain contact with his children, particularly at weekends. On the 20th of August 2003, Nancy was Googling and she was Googling sleeping pills, overdose on sleeping pills, medications causing heart attacks and drug overdose. Now this was captured by Robert's spyware that he had installed on the computer. Now this spyware was also capturing Nancy's emails to her lover, Michael Del Priore, back in Vermont. Now Robert made it known to Nancy that he knew about the affair and Nancy knew that Robert had lost all trust in her. On the 29th of August 2003, Nancy obtained 10 tablets of Stillnox, and that's also known as Ambien. And she got that from the clinic of Dr. Desmond Fung in Central. On the 30th of October 2003, she obtained from the clinic 10 tablets of Stillnox, 20 tablets of Amitriptyline. I fall over these things all the time. I'm not editing it out. I'm not going to try it again. And 15 tablets of Loravan. Now, in the meantime, on the 23rd of October, she obtained 10 tablets of Rohypnol from the clinic of Dr. Annabelle Dytham in Wanchai. All four of these drugs have a sedative or sleep-inducing property. Now, on the same day, she found a website through a Google computer search for Rohypnol which stated that it had similar effects to alcohol as it could reduce inhibitions, impair judgment and cause the victim to become unconscious. And as well, that it can, be, that it can produce amnesia. Now, after Nancy's first visit to Dr. Fung's clinic on the 29th of August, Robert telephoned a Mr. Shea and said that he was concerned that his wife was trying to kill him by poisoning him. He drank some scotch whiskey from the decanter at home and felt woozy and very disoriented. Now, this wasn't the first time Nancy had put pills in Robert's whiskey. When he was back in Stratton during the SARS epidemic thing, I don't think it was an epidemic, but the SARS thing, she had tried mixing pills into his whiskey, but she saw that there was a white residue in it and so she tipped it out. Now, on the 31st of October, 2003, Robert told a Mr. Robin Egerton, now he was a partner at the Hampton Winter and Glynn solicitors, that he would discuss with his wife their future matrimonial arrangements. On the 2nd of November, a neighbour at the Parkview, a Mr. Tanza, he brought his daughter Leah to play with the Kissel's daughter June at the Kissel's apartment that afternoon. Mr. Tanza took Leah there at about 2.45pm. He and Robert conversed in the living room for about 45 minutes while the children played elsewhere. Now, as Mr. Tanza was about to leave, Nancy asked him to stay for a drink. Now, she returned with two tall glasses filled with a milkshake, a strawberry milkshake. Mr. Tanza described them as having a reddish colour and as tasting quite sweet with a banana flavour. He finished the milkshake and thought that the taste was strange. And as he was leaving, he asked Nancy, what was in that milkshake? And she replied that it was her secret recipe. 
Yes. Well, at least it's not ethyl glycol. Mr. Tanzer went straight home. Although he'd not had any alcohol to drink that day, he found that for most of the rest of the day, he either blacked out, was semi-conscious or asleep. The next morning, he felt quite disoriented and unable to recall much of what happened after 4pm the previous day. Now, he described it as a little bit like amnesia, an experience which he'd not previously encountered, and his family noticed his unusual appearance and condition. So, we're back to the day day before. At 4.51pm, Robert made a telephone call to Mr. No. The call lasted for 10 minutes. Now, Mr. No said that Robert was talking on a different tangent and kept saying how tired he was feeling. The answers which Robert gave seemed bizarre. He seemed very mellow and his speech was slurred. Now, Robert did, however, mention that he would later be discussing the issue of divorce with his wife. Later that evening, Robert didn't participate in an important telephone conference call between Merrill Lynch personnel, which had been arranged for that evening. Now, Robert, who'd been in the children's playground with his son, Reese, returned to the apartment at 5.15pm following a request to do so by Nancy, conveyed to him by Min, which was one of the two domestic helpers they had. Now, when Min and the children returned to the apartment at 6.15pm, Nancy asked Min to tell the children not to make a noise as their daddy was sleeping. In the meantime, between 5.15pm and 6.15pm, Nancy and Robert were alone in the apartment. With the drugs that Nancy had put in the strawberry milkshake at their strongest, it's here that she would make her move. While Robert lay defenceless on the marital bed, Nancy Kissel grabbed a lead ornament of three and a half kilos or seven pounds and bludgeoned Robert on the head at least five times, any any of which would have been fatal. She then rolled up his body in a carpet from the living room and stored it in the master bedroom for a few days. She then had it placed in their storeroom at the Parkview apartment complex by a couple of handymen in the building. Now, now maybe in the movies, or if you were going to move the body yourself, that you could get away with rolling rolling up a body in a carpet... But maybe these workers just, they just didn't ask questions. They just did the job, moved the body and got paid. Nothing to see here. Now, Nancy had earlier tried to lease more storage room, but there was none available. So she'd actually had their existing storage room cleared out of all its contents well before she killed Robert. So this is showing that she's planned this for quite a while. She arranged for the purchase of items, including bleach, carpets, furniture, cushions, towels, cardboard boxes, adhesive tape, bedding materials and peppermint oil. Now Nancy told Robert's father and others that they'd argued and Robert had taken off. She added, and this is a little bit strange, oh he's alive but she has no idea where he was. It's weird saying oh he's alive. So anyway let's keep going. Nancy seemed to suffer some sort of breakdown late on 6th of November or early 7th of November when she realised that the police were about to search the Parkview storeroom. She was taken to Ruttengee Hospital where she continued to tremble over the whole of her body and was unable to speak. 
In the early hours of the 7th of November, she was arrested for murder. She was later transferred to the custodial ward of Queen Elizabeth Hospital, where she didn't respond at all to any questioning. On or about the 18th of November 2003, she was taken to the Sue Lamb Psychiatric Centre, where she remained until released on bail. Now, a search of the Kissel storage room at the Parkview. It uncovered Robert's body, of course. Now, he had been placed in a sleeping bag with towels inside a rolled-up carpet over which was placed plastic sheeting secured by rope and masking tape with four cushions placed on top and held together by adhesive tape. Now, also in the storage room were several pieces of furniture. In the house, police found a newly purchased carpet to replace the bloodstained one in the storage room and there was new bedding which replaced the bloodstained items and also there were bloodstained items found in the kids' bedrooms. Now, Nancy's story to police was one of domestic violence and self-defence. She said that Robert often forced anal sex on her and on the afternoon of his death, Robert had tried to force anal on her again. He beat her up, kicked her and threatened her with a baseball bat. She even presented herself to doctors just after Robert's death. So this is why at the same time he's stored in the bedroom. And it was noted that she had puncture wounds on her fingers and carpet burns on her knees. Now, I once had a friend that told me about her carpet burns on her knees and she had some on her chin as well. But anyway, let's get back to this. She also complained of broken ribs and and broken fingers and that was sustained after a violent argument with Robert. Now, these doctor's visits were on the 4th and the 6th of November, two and four days after Robert's death. Both doctors, though, thought she was exaggerating her injuries and x-rays showed that no fractures of her ribs or fingers existed. In fact, it would later be found the puncture wounds on her fingers were from holding the statue that she used to bludgeon Robert to death and the carpet burns were from dragging his body across the carpet. Now, there was never any evidence at all that Robert was violent in his marriage or that he tried to force sex on her. In fact, anyone who knew Robert would say the opposite. The violence that Nancy spoke of was just fabrication by herself to try to get off on a lesser sentence or to get off the charges completely. The prosecution at the trial told the jury that Nancy had planned the murder of her husband to not only be with her new lover, Michael Del Priore, but also to keep custody of her children. And again, there's money involved to control the couple's $18 million estate. Now, with the custody thing, you can imagine if Robert got custody and Nancy ended up going back to Stratton or wherever she was going to ultimately go, access to the kids would have been severely restricted. And now that's assuming she would have gone back to the US to be with Priori, which is probably what she would have done. Now, they had a lot of evidence from the people Robert had confided in before this all happened. They had the emails that Nancy had written to her lover. They had testimony from the private eye that busted him, the <laughs> Priori sneaking into the house at Stratton when Robert was in Honkers. And they had evidence that Robert had been drugged with the strawberry milkshake because Mr. Tanza had also been affected the same day after drinking one of them. Robert had told people how he thought Nancy was drugging him and yeah, all four of the types of sedatives that she'd bought 
were found in his system. So, you could say that all this evidence was circumstantial, but she would end up being found guilty of murdering Robert and sentenced to life for 25 years in prison. Now, the kids, we can't forget the kids, dad's dead, mum's in jail. Well, they were taken back to stay with their uncle, Robert's older brother, Andrew, and his wife, Hayley. Bizarrely, Andrew Kissel would be found bound, gagged, and stabbed to death in his home on April the 3rd, 2006. Now, that's less than two and a half years after Nancy killed Robert. Now, this time it wasn't the wife. But I'll go into this case. I'll probably go into this case next week. It's a bit freaky, hey? But from what I can see, and I won't let too much out just now, but where the younger brother Robert worked ethically to get where he was, older brother Andrew was a lot dodgier. And when it involves large amounts of other people's money, things can get dangerous. Now, getting back to Nancy Kissel, She did try to appeal her case over several years. She tried the domestic violence self-defence thing. She tried the mentally unstable thing, but ultimately she failed. Now, I get it when defence teams try to find any way to get their clients off the hook. But when bullshit allegations of domestic violence and mental issues are used, all that does is take away from those who genuinely have been victims of domestic violence or have some sort of mental issue. Now, there was absolutely no evidence that Robert was anything other than a loving and supporting husband. There was absolutely no evidence that Nancy suffered any mental illness. Now, what she did was abhorrent. She killed for the lust of her new lover. She didn't want a divorce, which would mean she may not have access to her children. And what sort of settlement of the estate she'd get, well, I guess no one really knows now. But how's the kids? Their selfish, bitch-faced mother kills the father and then they're virtually adopted adopted into their uncle and aunt's family and then Uncle Andrew's murdered, for fuck's sake. Anyway, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that case next week. And that's the end of this week's episode. I know it's a little bit shorter than normal, but hey, I'm not going to fill it up with bullshit. I think you've got the uh, idea of what happened over in Hong Kong. And like I said, if you can ever get out, if we're ever allowed to get out to anywhere near Hong Kong or Macau or anywhere, it is a really good place to spend a few days. It is a bit busy at times, but there's great food, great people. And uh, I don't know, maybe go to Hong Kong Disneyland, go and see Mickey. So that's the end of this week's episode. Patreon, thanks to all my past and present and new patrons, your financial support does make a difference. This True Crime Island is commercial free for all, so no annoying ads for undies or food delivery or shit like that. And all my content is available for everyone, no matter if you can donate or not. And this week, thanks to Greg Studley. He has a podcast actually called Behind Bars. Cocktails and Wasted Nights. Now, I actually haven't had a chance to listen to this yet, but I'll have to try to get hold of a promo. Now, I have had a bit of a chat with Greg, so he he did say, look, if you do go and listen to his podcast before I do the promo, he said the first couple episodes, he had to get the audio right, as happens with all different podcasts. It takes us a while to get it all sorted out, but he reckons he's got that sorted out now, and I think he's up to episode 12, so... 
give it a listen. Now, if you want to help out the island, you can go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island. If you don't like the monthly thing, you can also send beer money. I always love a little bit of beer money to PayPal. The PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash true crime island and remember support yourself before you support the island i know times are tough at the moment so don't worry and if you are an existing patreon person and you do find it's a bit stressful financially at the moment hey no problems just drop out there's i don't mind at all I have merch at Threadless and Redbubble now. I've updated my website, truecrimeisland.com, and there's a contact and merch link. So if you click on that, you can get links to Threadless and Redbubble. There's also links to my website, to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and I'm not really on Facebook and Twitter much. I try to avoid it a little bit. Instagram, I put up a photo each week for every episode. But yeah, if you uh, want to get hold of me, it's best to send me an email, cambo at truecrimeisland.com. It is easier, especially if you've got a case suggestion, so I can search through my emails and find you. Look, you can also support the show, and this is really important and I really appreciate it, by rating and reviewing and also sharing it with your friends and family. Now, please feel free to check out my YouTube channel and subscribe. It's starting to come on a bit. Please feel free to comment. And if you want to get notifications, hit the little bell. I've also got a link to that on my website. Now, a lot of the comments I'm getting are from new people who haven't listened to the audio podcast before. And what they do like about it is I don't do like a documentary-style podcast. I say the facts and da-da-da-da-da, and I have all this music and stuff like this in the background, all this atmospheric music. I basically call out these perpetrators for what they are, and I don't hold back. And so, if you know anyone who would like that, tell them about my YouTube channel, get them on there, and have a watch, and we'll start to build that part of the island. Now, again, I said, best way to contact me, email me, Campbell at truecrimeisland.com. Before I go, there's just a big shout-out to Abby Nutt. She's one of our moderators on the Facebook page. She had a very uh, sad loss this week. Just if you can send your love. And also for Jason Abercrombie, whose wife, Michelle, I think she's a little bit sick at the moment. Also, if you could just send your love to both of those. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fuck a London.